Boys and girls, your attention, please. First of all, I'd like to make a little statement. Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. All of your friends are welcome. Once you learn the basic rules, it isn't really so complicated, is it? make good first impressions. It's a simple enough matter to give people you meet plenty of room to pass. Try to understand another person's viewpoint. That's a rather simplified suggestion of a complex mental process. But you get the idea. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. My name is Zach Rhodes. I'm your host, and I co-produce the program along with Aaron Ferguson. Today, you'll hear my interview with Dr. Christopher Chabri. Christopher wrote a pretty famous book along with Daniel Simons called The Invisible Gorilla and Other Ways Our Intuitions Deceive Us. The book itself was named after an experiment that we'll talk about in the interview. You can actually try it on YouTube. I'll leave a link in the show description. Although, I think you can just search in YouTube or, or just anywhere for the invisible gorilla, and that experiment will pop right up, and you will be the subject of the experiment. Many of you have tried it already, because I posted it on social media, or you've otherwise heard of it, and like me, you had this feeling as though you just may as well leave your brain at home before you go out into the world. Which is good, you know, that counterintuition that you'll experience once you've tried the experiment, that is in part what Christopher talks about in the book, but it's not the whole picture. What you'll take away from the book, and hopefully from our talk today, is the nature of reality is richer than that which we observe. Our intuitions, including our memories, our attention span, knowledge base, emotions, they're all very useful. They're what help us enjoy what it is to be human. But we can be even greater than our intuitions if we're willing to admit that the things we notice in each moment are rarely the whole story, if realistic in the first place. What we remember about the past, what we notice in the present, and what we predict about the future, while these are all valid in the theater of our own imaginations, they do not always yield real-world applications. Anybody following the current political landscape right now is sure to have noticed this. So I talked with Christopher Chabri about a sad truth, namely that I am not the center of the universe, (laughs) and I'm not even always right about everything, if anything, and neither is he, and neither are you. And he makes a great case that being honest and having a constructive attitude towards these truths, they can help us become more cognitively aware as individuals on the one hand, and on the other Being honest about these truths and aware of them can turn our communities and corporations, society, into something greater than the sum of our parts. So I hope you use the concepts today that we talk about as fuel to fulfill your New Year's resolutions. (laughs) I hope that you'll enjoy this interview with Dr. Christopher Chabri. But before you do... I'd like to ask you to help Aaron and me make progress with our podcast as we head into the new year. There are at least three ways to do this. One is by simply rating and reviewing us on the podcast app. iTunes is specifically 
uh, worthwhile to do this on, which makes an enormous difference in terms of how easy we are to search for. Another way you can support us is by going to audibletrial.com slash the social exchange and signing up for a free trial of Audible at no cost to you. I suppose that's what it means to be free. Try it for 30 days, and we get a kickback from Audible just for you signing up. You can cancel it any time. And then lastly, it'll help us tremendously if you donate to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the social exchange. You'll become a member of the team for as little as $2, which makes an incredible difference in terms of our, you know, the time and effort and equipment that we're able to offer to the production of the show. We also offer rewards to all of our patrons, so check out our page at patreon.com slash the social exchange. And before we launch into the interview, I want to thank our patrons, Anne Earl, Inigo, John Holt, Layla Ferguson, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean Holt, Regina Ferguson, Timmy Tucker, Christian, Thomas Rhodes, Marjorie Israel, Diane T., Trevor, and Kathleen Cochran. We at The Social Exchange Podcast wish you all a prosperous, productive, and fallacy-free new year. No more preamble. Here is Dr. Christopher Chabri. Welcome to The Social Exchange Podcast. I'm here with Christopher Chabri. Christopher is a professor and researcher in cognitive psychology. He's co-author of the book, The Invisible Gorilla. Christopher, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for having me on. So as I mentioned, and I think as many listeners are probably aware, you and, was it Daniel Simon? wrote the very popular book, The Invisible Gorilla. It would probably be still fascinating, but would I think it would just be a lazy interview if I had to explain chapter by chapter the concepts in your book. But Maybe we can use the book as a launch pad for exploring the concepts that you research, namely cognitive illusions, collective human intelligence, and individual differences in thinking and decision-making. But before we get into it, could you give listeners just an idea about your background and talk about how you became involved with your current work? Sure. So uh, I'm a cognitive psychologist, as, as you said. Sometimes I call myself a cognitive scientist. I have a PhD in psychology that uh, I got at Harvard University. Uh, my undergraduate degrees in computer science, um, and so I was interested in artificial intelligence for a while, and neural networks, and, thing, and neural networks, and and um, topics like that. But I sort of moved into cognitive neuroscience, and then mainstream cognitive psychology, and and I've really done sort of like a work in a variety of topics within behavioral science. So I've worked with economists and anthropologists and uh, sociologists and here now I'm at Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, which is a large integrated health system where I'm in the research department and do sort of a variety of, of work related to thinking, decision making, um, behavior genetics. And, um, you know, some of it has, has something to do with understanding uh, uh, health care and, and how uh, and, and, you know, sort of anything about human decision making um, is relevant to uh, to healthcare. So that's that's part of why I'm. Uh, of why I'm here now doing uh, doing research. You do do a, a ton of research and writing. Your book, The Invisible Gorilla, and just The Invisible Gorilla Experiment seem to be most famous, so I think I, we can't avoid that. Can we start there? Would you describe the experiment and um, what it suggests with regard to selective attention? Sure. So Dan Simons and I uh, did this experiment um, when uh, I was a graduate student at Harvard, sort of 
close to finishing up my PhD and Dan was a new faculty member. He had just become a professor and turns out our offices were down the hall from each other. And I was actually working as the teaching fellow or teaching assistant um, for a course that Dan was teaching on how to do experiments in psychology. And Dan had the idea that the students in the course um, should all collaborate together on a single experiment. And he knew about uh, this previous research from way back in the 70s. Hmm. Um, by the way, this was the late 90s when we were doing this at Harvard. Way back in the 70s, um, Ulrich Neisser, who was one of the, the, the pioneers of cognitive psychology and made many sort of fundamental discoveries and contributions, um, had, had done some sort of strange experiments where uh, he found that people could uh, fail to notice you know, what seemed to him like fairly obvious things. So we decided to do a version of one of his experiments where we recorded videos of people passing basketballs back and forth. And in the, the setup that we had, there were six people, um, three wearing white shirts and three wearing black shirts. Um, and they, all these people were in the video uh, frame at all times. And the people in white shirts passed a basketball around and the people in black shirts passed a basketball around and they all moved around and, and walked around and sort of weaved in and out of each other. And what we did was we recorded a video of this that lasted you know, 60 or 70 seconds and later asked uh, participants in our experiment to just watch this video and count the number of times they saw one of the teams, let's say the team in white shirts, pass the ball. Just silently count in their head. And what we didn't tell them in advance was that halfway through the video, something unusual happened. And in the most famous version of this, a person in a gorilla suit walks, walks right through the middle of the basketball players, turns to thump uh, its chest at the audience, and then uh, walks off. And we had a lot of different versions of this and, and different conditions of this experiment. But the main finding was that when people are paying attention to the people passing balls and counting the number of times they do that, which is an attention demanding task, um, they are uh, surprisingly likely to completely miss the gorilla, to not notice it at all, even though it can be on the screen for up to nine seconds, um, which is a long time for something to be on the screen and actually sort of trying to get your attention and yet for you not to notice it. So the failure to notice this salient object or sort of any salient object because your attention is occupied with something else uh, is known as inattentional blindness. So due to inattention, failure to pay attention, namely paying attention to something else, failure to pay attention to um, the unexpected thing, it is as though you are blind to it. You sort of completely don't see it. Obviously, like the, the light rays from it. Uh, you know, hit your, your eye and your retina and, you know, cause, you know, neurons to fire in your brain, but somehow you just don't perceive that that thing was there. And uh, it surprises people when they, when they see uh, what they actually missed, you know, when you play the video back for them and then say, in, and say, don't count the passes now, just watch the video. They all immediately notice the gorilla. And a lot of them say, how could I miss that? And, <laughs> and accuse us of, accuse us of tricking them with like a separate video right, and, yeah. and so on. And, and this, this experiment, this experimental effect is, is very robust. It, you know, the, anyone can take this video and use it as a classroom demo or show it to their friends and family. Many TV producers have used it, to, you know, in, on their shows and everything like that. It's and there are other versions of it as well that use different stimuli. It's be, uh, advertising agencies have created different versions of it, like with moonwalking bears and and so on. I mean, you, endless variations on this kind of experiment, you know, work. So it's 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 one of those robust, replicable uh, you know, scientific findings from behavioral science. And, and then of course the question sort of is what, what are the implications of that? What does it say about, um, how the mind works and, and, and our everyday behavior? Well, first of all, 
I have to imagine it was interesting to be in the room when somebody decided it should be a gorilla. Is there any significance to that? <laughs> well, the, the way that happened is um, one of the uh, one of the students who was working on the project with us was actually a, a graduate student um, named Steve Most. He's now a professor in Australia, a psychology professor in Australia. But at that time, he was a graduate student. And he was also working in Jerome Kagan's um, developmental psychology lab. Jerome Kagan is a famous developmental psychologist, done many important studies of infant behavior, infant temperament, and uh, oh, yeah. and so on. And yeah. he happened to have a gorilla suit in the lab that they were using sort of for studies on on babies and and uh, and children. And Steve, you know, quote borrowed unquote the gorilla suit from the lab so that we could use it for this. Uh, and the reason why we had uh, we needed a gorilla suit, well, we didn't really need a gorilla suit, but in Nicer's old experiment from the seventies, he had a woman walk through the action. Um, carrying an umbrella. And and I should say that one of the reasons why Nicer's experiment was different from ours is that he recorded the players in white shirts and the players in black shirts and the umbrella woman as three separate videos oh. and using 1970s like video editing technology, which involved mirrors, literally mirrors. He superimposed them all. And it looks like a lot of ghosts throwing balls around and walking around. And so one reason why people might have missed the woman carrying the umbrella when they when they watch nicer's video and tried to count the number of times the ball was being thrown is that everything was kind of hard to see and perceive mm. whereas we changed it one our sort of our big improvement was not so much having a gorilla but having all the characters be physically in the space at the same time and just you know move around each other without running into each other so <laughs> you everything was completely visible and easy to see there were no issues of sort of of perception of not seeing transparent things or of just general weirdness of the you know of the quality of the video affecting people's ability to notice this thing. So the, the gorilla was kind of an afterthought because Steve happened to, to have one around, happened to have a gorilla suit. But it turned out, obviously, to be the sort of the more famous, uh, you know, version of the experiment. Most people I know uh, know of the video, but I showed it to people on my social media pages, some of whom had never seen it. Most of them didn't see it, the, the gorilla. I suppose that's consistent with the findings. And they wondered if there was something wrong with them some problem. And likewise, people who saw it wondered if there was something special about their own abilities. I, I of course, suspect that neither of those things are true. Well, it's a, ver it's a very common uh, supposition on both of their accounts. But <laughs> I think you're right that so far, all the research that's been done on this particular kind of video and, and on the, the general phenomenon suggests that there are not uh, substantial differences between people who notice and people who don't notice. And, and one reason for that is that it's, it's a it's a very noisy measure of your ability to notice unexpected things to just give you a single video one time and measure whether you noticed one thing, because there's so many things that could contribute to whether any one person notices anything at any one time. That's why we run this on you know dozens of people and see what percentage of them notice in different conditions. It doesn't really work very well as an individual test. It's not designed that way, like an IQ test or a personality test would be designed. Right. Um, so for that reason, you know, even if there was a relationship between, let's say, intelligence and, and noticing or whatever, you wouldn't really be able to pick it up, you know, with, with this kind of test. But, but even so, there might be some relationships to things like capacity of working memory and, and so on, but they're, they're not, they're not huge. So most of what determines like whether any one person will notice or not are probably factors that you could collectively describe as luck. So the, Findings do tip you off in some ways. And so tell me if I'm speaking about the kind of challenges you might want to think about here with the results. Uh, one, I suppose, is that if we want to understand what's true, we have to think about ways we can overcome this sort of ubiquitous limitation by our own ability to pay attention. The other would be that we have to, if we're going to overcome that problem, we have to admit 
that we had the limitation in the first place. Would you say that's right? I think that's right. And I think that this, uh, one of the effects of this experiment, which we didn't really anticipate at the time and which kind of led us to writing a book about it, you know, a book based on it 10 years later, um, Hmm. was how people sort of saw it. And we sort of thought of it when we were doing it as an experiment in visual attention. And the idea of inattentional blindness was was not new. Nicer had not used that term. He called it selective looking. But then in the 90s, other researchers, um, notably Arian Mack and, and Irvin Rock, had coined this term inattentional blindness. Um, they were using much different kinds of experiments to show it. We really sort of produced a very dramatic demonstration of how, uh, of how um, you know, lengthy and and um, salient events could be missed. Mm. Um, but what other people, the way other people interpreted it, originally didn't occur to us, and they they really did interpret it kind of like you are, as sort of like, you know, an insight into the limitations of our own, you know, abilities and our own perception, like a, a somewhat profound insight, which we didn't realize actually. So. Um, uh, you know, we, we started hearing that people had been shown the video in, you know, law school classes or business school classes or uh, in, in various contexts where we sort of never imagined that it would be, you know, as, as relevant as it, as it turned out to be. So I think it does reveal to people that their um, their mind's perception of the world and, and also their mind's understanding of itself, you know, is not as 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 good as you would think, because most people think they would notice something like this. So most people have sort of like an incorrect, you know, view, or as we would say, an illusion about the workings of their own mind. They, they incorrectly believe that they will notice uh, any important things that come into their field of view or that they should notice when in fact, what they notice is really determined quite a bit by what they're paying attention to and what they expect and don't expect to see. Right now, I'm thinking about the way that the way that most people process information about the world. It seems about politics and social issues. We have the assumption that slogans and sound bites carry with them some profound truth. We know, intellectually speaking, that to be nuanced would be the best thing we could do in terms of finding truth. But when we hear some sort of a slogan that matches our already existing beliefs, especially about how the world works, um, we're inclined to believe it. And we've always done this, but um, I'm curious now. I hope I'm not jumping ahead too many steps. It just got me thinking. I wonder if social media has, um, I don't want to say enhanced, but made it even easier than ever to operate under these illusions, uh, maybe more difficult than ever to parse reality from things like propaganda. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned this because uh, it, it reminds me of something a friend of mine um, who's a music professor, a guy named John Cox, very, very good guy, music professor. He, he once said just sort of, I don't know what the context was, but out of hand, he said, the main function of the Internet is to confirm our suspicions. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, first, at first I laughed, but then I thought a little bit more about it. And I said, wow, that is, you know, that is that is pretty spot on, because I think, you know, when ideally, uh, you know, an ideal reasoner in some sense, which the human mind is not, but an ideal reasoner, you know, in some logical sense would want to look for evidence that contradicts. Um, what they believe to be true mm-hmm. um, and to, you know, to test their belief against against evidence and look for reasons why they might be wrong. But, you know, the phenomena, the well-known phenomenon of confirmation bias, uh, you know, suggests that that what people tend to do is to pay more attention to and even and, and believe more and even seek out more information that um, confirms their existing beliefs. And I think the Internet sort of does make it easy to do that because you can you know, for any crazy thing you believe, you can probably find, you know, 
pages and sites and groups and so on that argue in favor of that or that that give you some support. And it's very hard to even tell whether what they're saying, you know, is factual or not, because the words, you know, the words that pop up on your screen don't come annotated with footnotes and sources and quality of evidence ratings and uh, and and so on. So um, uh, in, a, in a sense, I, I think John, you know, John is kind of uh, is kind of right. It might be not the design purpose of the internet, but it could be part of its function at present. And I, I have to say, like I, I, I say that very tongue in cheek, because obviously the internet and and social media and all of this stuff, I think, have a lot of great um, functions and enable uh, more good than than bad. Hmm. We just tend to be really focused on the bad right now in in the last you know couple of years, um, and we have already absorbed all the good into just sort of like the status quo of everyday life, but. Before, you know, before Facebook and Twitter, you know, you didn't have access to a lot of things you have access to now. And, and uh, uh, you know, before the Internet and before Google, um, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff was worse. I'll just put it that way. And we often forget yeah. um, about that. Or we somehow sort of valorize like how great it was that we had to drive all the way to the library and spend hours pouring through books of tiny <laughs> print and so on to find one obscure fact when now we can do it in two seconds from home. Right, yeah. It was good that it took like a whole afternoon in the past, you know, <laughs> and bad that now it only takes two seconds. I mean, I think if you step back and think about that objectively, you know, it doesn't really it, it, it doesn't really add up. It's, it's, it's certainly bad that people have new ways of interfering in elections and so on nowadays, but there's been a lot of good that's that, that, you know, that has, has come with that side effect. People are more prone to seeing uh, the bad than the good. I, sort of that idea that if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> well, yeah, and there, there's sort of a there, there's sort of a more um, a more academic or more sophisticated version of that um, theory in <laughs> psychology, which is that negative negative anything generally tends to be more powerful than positive anything mm. as a, uh, you know, I guess as a motivator or uh as an emotion or something like that, you know, for example, loss aversion, right. You know, so the phenomenon of loss aversion, um, you know, losing, uh, you know, losing something, you know, very roughly and generally, you know, seems to have about twice, you know, twice as much impact as gaining the same exact quantity. Um, and there are lots of examples of, of that as well, of negative emotions sort of being more powerful and, uh, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we could, you know, I'm not really an expert on sort of like what the evolutionary basis for that might be and why the mind might be designed that way. And and so on. It could be that there's a very, you know, sort of rational and logical, you know, um, historical reasons why the mind, uh, you know, evolved that way. But we're certainly in a different information ecology nowadays than we were during the time during most of the time the mind was evolving. So um, I, I think, you know, get, getting back to sort of some of the the, the premise of what we wrote about in the book, sort of like being aware of how your own mind is reacting to this environment and, you know, reacting to information and, and so on, and what you might be missing um, in, you know, in, in the outside world, in your own memory, in, in you know, how you pay attention to other people and, and, and who you trust and so on. That's, I think, even more useful now than it, than it ever was. So what are some ways around that or some ways to... Um you know, front load this cautiousness that we ought to have, um, to, or maybe triangulation that we ought to do to make sure that we are seeing things correctly? Um, well, it's not, I mean, I, I don't want to, don't want to trivialize it and say it's easy. It's not like they're sort of like some simple, like three steps you can, you can take, or even if they were, then the tough thing would be making it a habit, you know, to do that. So yeah. I can sort of give some suggestions, but I think the tough part is actually making, 
making it a habit. How do you, um, yeah, you how know, do you like, build this into your routine? Well, yeah, I mean, like, so, like, uh, you know, one thing I like to try to do myself, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of hard to do it, but I like to try to do, for example, is just try to consume news and ideas from different sources and ones that don't necessarily agree with each other, mm. right? So, um, you know, if you, if you like to watch Fox News, you steal yourself and watch MSNBC for a while, <laughs> Um, and, uh, and try to be open-minded about it or vice versa, you know, or, you know, watch, watch CNN and, you know, read both the New York times and the wall street journal, um, you know, check out national review as well as, you know, the Atlantic and, and Vox and, uh, you know, and so on or whatever, you know, there, there's some sites you can go to that sort of tell you sort of like what the ideological distribution of things are. And you can sort of like find things that, you know, might, might disagree with you. I, I kind of, you know, I, I think, um, you know, really, I mean, and by the way, a lot of what I'm saying now is not really, I think, terribly well informed by specific cognitive psychology research. So we're now getting into like a blend of my own opinions and experiences and so on and, and, and what research actually says. But I, I think like, you know, becoming suspicious of ideology is important, you know. So if, if you find yourself like a, you know, if you find yourself agreeing with with one group of people too much, you know, you should be suspicious that somehow you're not thinking things through carefully enough. And um, I, I think another important mental habit is to always ask as much as possible, you know, how do you know something that you think you know, or how do they know something that they're they're claiming or trying to convince you of? Because, you know, one thing that I think is true is that people in general are overconfident about what they know, about how well they understand things, and also about how well we understand cause and effect. Um, and that's that's like sort of three chapters in our book right there or confidence, um, you know, the illusion of knowledge and and the illusion of cause. Um, and so you've just sort of got to always keep in mind that the confidence and the certainty that people express um, are usually um, out of proportion to the amount of evidence they actually have or the degree to which you should believe them. It doesn't mean they're like the opposite. It's not like everyone's always trying to, to lie to you and deceive you. And, and if they say, you know, if, if they say black, you should think white and vice versa. But it's just that they will often assert things based on, you know, very little evidence. They'll assert, you know, very powerful claims. And you've got to be, you know, sort of, I think, as much as possible awake to that possibility. It doesn't mean you should be a cynic and think that there's no evidence for anything and it's everything's a matter of opinion and so on. It's just that you need to be more skeptical of claims, especially strong claims. And uh, sadly, especially when they come from from politicians and, and people trying to sell you things. Yes, that, the good point. It's it's much easier we we latch on to people who are confident or trust people who are confident more than necessarily people who are nuanced. Broadly speaking, for me, even it becomes exhausting to try to make sure that I'm being nuanced. So there does have to be sort of a a low resolution idea that I have about the world and people I can trust. I suppose the first people who can go are are politicians. Well, we need politicians. Unfortunately, someone's got to be, you know, someone's got to hold the elected offices. And <laughs> yes, you know, democracy is a horrible way of picking them, except for all the other ways. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and, you know, certainly like confidence is very appropriate in some situations. Right. Like in in the military. Right. I mean, you need like, you know, you, you need, you know, some confidence. I mean, imagine I was just think, just talking to, earlier today to someone about this. Like imagine all the confidence and trust that's necessary you know, to, to, to go and have surgery. Like you, you go to some mm. strange building and you like check in and, 
you know, you let them take off all your clothes and, you know, put you to sleep and cut into your body and rearrange things. And you just trust that you're going to wake up and it's all going to be better in the end. First, I'm never going to sleep again, by the way. Well, yeah, exactly. That's really what's happening, right? You know, and, 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 you know, you, you sort of hope that the, you, 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 you know, in a way you sort of want the surgeon to express confidence. You don't want a surgeon who says, yeah, we'll cut you open and see what happens. Mm. You know, like you, you know, and, and and of course, like often, like there, you know, to to some extent, confident. I mean, confidence usually is connected to skill and ability and accuracy and so on. So um, it's not a terrible heuristic. It's just that we often over um, over rely on it um, when we shouldn't. So, for example, eyewitness testimony, which we talk about in the book, and which many researchers in cognitive psychology and you know and memory have worked on quite a bit. A lot of evidence from the field of eyewitness testimony suggests that we pay put too much confidence in uh, eyewitnesses relative to how accurate they're actually likely to be. And in our own memories, we do the same thing. Um, you know, we often believe that our own memories are, are more accurate and detailed and objective and permanent than they really are. We, we've got a lot of sort of survey evidence on this where we ask people sort of like, how do they think of memory? Do they think it works like a video recorder sort of faithfully, you know, recording everything so you could just review it later? They a lot of people tend to endorse that, and that's really nothing like how memory works. It's kind of like the experience of retrieving a memory, where you can sort of retrieve vivid memories and so on. But the fact that you retrieve these vivid memories doesn't mean that they're accurate reflections of what happened. It turns out they're often sort of mashups of lots of different things from different sources, and you don't know where all that stuff came from. Isn't that crazy? You know, I, t- I interviewed um, this man, Mark Pendergrass is his name, great author, he yeah, he's written a lot, done a lot about recovered memories, yes. and false memories, and so on. Yes, and he's a friend of mine. We live close to each other, and I had him on to talk about Memory Warp, that book, and which was fabulous. And then I had him on to talk about Jerry Sandusky, and I can't tell if it's him operating under the the fallacy fallacy that you know bad memories uber ales, and so Sandusky must be uh, innocent, or it's me not being willing to kick my bias. So, um, you know, the point of that is I wonder if once people start becoming hyper-focused on things like how our intuitions fail us, um, does do you ever see trends of people becoming misinformed about their intuitions in that way? You know what I mean? Um, trying to overcompensate? Um, you mean sort of becoming too skeptical? Yes. Too uncertain, too too unsure? Um, no, not even too – yeah, yeah, too skeptical. But, you know, per Pendergrast writing about Sandusky, that my question the whole time, at least in the back of my mind, was how can I tell that you're not just prone to blaming bad memory rather than really good at accessing the information about what makes something a, a false memory? Um, I don't know that there's really a good – you know, way to determine that on a, on a case by case basis. You know, we all we all have to trust some people sometimes and figure out, you know, who to trust and what data sources seem more credible and and so on. I mean, I do think I get what you're saying in, in that it's possible to sort of drink too much of the, you know, false memory Kool-Aid mm-hmm. and think that uh, memory is so untrustworthy that we can't ever you know, rely on it for anything. And, and, and that would be going too far. But I, I don't think it's going too far to say, we need to decrease the weight we put on pure memory, uncorroborated by anything else. If there's nothing else to corroborate it, you know, we, we still have to use it. It's not like it's it's not like it's worth nothing. And there could be good reasons why there's no corroborating documentary or physical evidence or anything like that. In the future, that will increasingly be less so because 
you know, all this technology that surrounds us all the time is kind of passively recording information about us or we're actively recording it, but we don't even know, like when we tweet, when we post on Facebook, when we send emails that go into our sent mail folder, when we receive emails, our calendars, if we're on the computer, like they go back to whenever we started. There's a lot of ways now to sort of verify memory and what happened when and, and, and just to sort of correct, you know, to, to, to correct one's own memory. But there's still times when we don't have, you know, when, when we don't have that. And then it's a difficult, you know, it's a difficult uh, judgment call sometimes. I think we just shouldn't be so confident in it. You know, we can still make judgments, but we should really be aware that we're trusting memories that if they don't independently cross corroborate each other might might not be might not be accurate. So memory and attention and things like that are not all or nothing and they're not always what we think they are. Do human beings have any truly, this might sound silly, but any truly reliable intuitions or uh, circumstances in which maybe we could use those intuitions the most fruitfully? Well, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, sometimes in psychology, we it seems like we focus on the mistakes people make and when human thinking and human mental faculties fail. Um, and the reason for that is not because humans are terrible and the mind is terribly designed and you know, we're all stupid and, and uh, have bad memories and don't pay attention or anything like that. That's not the reason why psychologists do that. The reason why is that, well, there's two reasons why I think, two main reasons why. One is historically there's been a model of the mind as sort of like the rational, a rational computational device. And so when, when, when we find examples of how the mind doesn't work like that, you know, we tend to point those out. But, but two, seeing the conditions under which something breaks or doesn't work as well as it as it could or or should, often illuminate something about uh, how the des- how they're designed. So, for example, the phenomenon of inattentional blindness is is important because it seems to tell us something about how attention works. That, namely, attention is a very very selective enhancement of processing of some kinds of information, and we couldn't get around without that. Um, you know, so you wouldn't probably want to give up your inattentional blindness because it would probably you probably the only way to do that would be to not actually be able to pay attention very well in the first place. Mm. And to sort of constantly be sort of scanning, you know, constantly be scanning the world and, and shifting your attention really fast and never focusing on any one thing. And, and only when you focus on things can you actually achieve what the mind is really capable of, like even just like playing sports or even just spectating sports for that matter. You know, unless you can follow the ball around or follow the players around or whatever, how do you get anything out of a soccer game or a football game or a basketball game? You know, you need attention in order to be do in order to do that. And you just have to, you know, accept the inattentional blindness as a consequence, but also as something that sort of illuminates an important factor about, you know, the, the good design of the mind, which is sort of like the exquisite enhancement of information processing that happens when we do focus attention. You know, like, and you can make similar arguments for a lot of the other, you know, a lot of the other sort of foibles that we talk about in our book. You know, for example, inferring cause and effect um, improperly. You know, like if, if you if you if you notice that like some kids who are vaccinated for childhood diseases um, sometime later develop uh, autism or some developmental disorder, you might inappropriately, incorrectly infer that the vaccine caused um, the developmental disorder. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, yes, you could. This, and, you know, as, as we all know, this has been done, and it's it's led to a lot of problems. Yeah. But, um, but but that's probably uh, you know that that tendency to infer cause and effect, uh, you know, um, when uh, is important because if we didn't have that, we'd be a lot worse off. You know, so it probably helps us in understanding the structure of the world 
and an understanding of the natural world well enough to succeed in it, um, to have these mechanisms that infer cause and effect that sometimes, you know, sort of get hyperactive and, um, and, and jump to conclusions that they shouldn't, um, that they shouldn't make. But again, like where, you know, th those, those mistakes sort of show something about how that system works and maybe, you know, why it, why it got there in the first place. Uh, and so on. So it, it's not like the it's not like the mind sucks and it's terrible at everything and so on. Obviously, we're like we're beating all the other animals, you know, and, uh, and you know, and succeeding in the planet, you know, and, and we've done great things collectively in history and, and you know, and, and so on. So we, we shouldn't get we shouldn't get too down on it. And, and, you know, and I think often a lot of the unconscious mechanisms of information processing, you know, work quite well. Like the, the whole visual system is doing incredible, incredible feats that you're not even aware of just to understand you know, what, what the world looks like and where things are and, and, you know, and, and how to reach them and pick them up and react to them and so on. And, and it's an incredible thing that is operating sort of like entirely unconsciously out of your awareness. Um, and we don't even think about it, you know, but that's a tremendous feat of engineering that, you know, even, even, you know, deep learning is still working on, you know, matching small parts of that. There's an argument to be made that we are good at acting collectively. Well, Relatively speaking, and you do a lot of research about collective intelligence, differences between cognitive abilities within whole groups. I'd like to think that together in our own families, groups, as a society, we could probably work together to become smarter and greater than the sum of our parts. Do you think there's reason to be optimistic that this is so? Well, not only there's a reason, not only is there reason to be optimistic, it's there are massive amounts of evidence that collectively, you know, we, we've achieved things that individuals can't achieve working by themselves right like hmm. you know i don't know the corporation right like you, the, the the business corporation has only been in existence for a few centuries as far as i know i'm not a you know i'm not an economic historian but that's a relatively recent social innovation and it basically has to do with you know combining the efforts of lots of different people to achieve things that individuals couldn't achieve by themselves hmm. um uh, you know, the electoral systems, markets, you know, there's all kinds of signs of sort of like this large scale collective intelligence where, um, you know, pe people achieve better outcomes by operating collectively than they than they would otherwise. Wikipedia is an example, too. Like their Wikipedia has its problems. But, you know, amazingly, no one ever got paid for it. And yet they came up with a really pretty good encyclopedia that every, anyone can access for free. You know, again, you skip the trip to the library after school and pouring over books, you know, um, <laughs> uh, so um, the good old days, yeah, lots of signs of, yeah, there's lots of signs of collective intelligence on that scale. The kind of collective intelligence research that I've been mostly involved with is, is sort of on a smaller scale of looking at the idea of teams and small groups, kind of like when we have meetings at work or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. like or people get around the table and start talking about some project or something like that. And, and, and our research looked at the question of whether there are some groups. And again, I'm talking about small groups or, or teams that are smarter than others. Um, meaning just in general, they work better together, they solve more problems, um, they come up with, uh, you know, better solutions, um, better decisions. And basically, we found the answer is yes. Um, there's a pretty, you know, when, when you when you randomly put people together in groups, there's a pretty wide variation in how well those groups perform. And it's not uh, all due to, um, at least in our in our research, at least, it's not all due to some groups having the smartest individuals and other groups having less smart individuals. There are other factors involved, like um, groups having people who have more social intelligence, um, you know, have sort of more social skills, um, groups that have a more even distribution of contributions, you know, where one person doesn't do most of the talking, but where people tend to talk 
you know, sort of equally. Hmm. Also, groups with more women in our data tend to do better on our test of collective intelligence, probably partly because they tend to have slightly higher social intelligence as well. So we we, we tried to find, you know, some factors that seem to, um, you know, that, that seem to matter for making uh, groups smarter than others. So on one hand, people with strong groups with higher collective social intelligence seem to fare better and women broadly speaking have some degree of uh, social intelligence you know a leg up on men is that is that what you mean there's a lot of data that suggests that i mean i, I think it's, it's 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 not as it's not as clear cut um as, as as it might be and i think if there's probably a small you know women are slightly better than men in uh individual social intelligence you know they're, they're somewhat better at recognizing faces you know like remembering whether they've seen a face before or not, maybe slightly better at inferring emotions or mental states from um, people's faces, things like that. Um, and I think that sort of like all adds up to a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more collectively intelligent group when you have people like that, whether they're women or men who are highly socially intelligent, you know, they can, they're better at understanding and keeping track of what other people are thinking, of what other people are feeling, maybe of exchanging information by other channels. Um, you know, with, with sort of subtext or facial expressions or whatever, um, than someone who is is worse in that skill. But it's not as though that's the only thing that matters. Obviously, like for certain problems, you need um, people who are expert in certain areas, and you also generally need you know smarter people whenever possible. But but the the social intelligence component, I think, is is clearly valuable also. So it doesn't stand to reason, at least not clearly so, to do something like Justin Trudeau and make sure that the cabinet's fifty percent women. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I don't. There, there could be a lot of reasons politically why you might want to do something like that besides just maximizing the collective intelligence of, of the cabinet. Mm. It's not really clear in politics, at least as I understand it, that the, the cabinet really does that much. And certain, you know, in certain governments, it's more of just sort of like a collection of, of people who are in charge of things. But there, there have been some studies about this, looking at um, looking at uh, companies that have more women on their boards of directors. Let's say proportionally more women on their boards of directors um, than others. Um, they, they tend to, you know, they tend to perform better in these studies. Companies with more women on the board tend to perform better in these studies. But there's there's a there's a cause there's a cause and effect issue there. It could be that companies that are doing better are the ones that are sort of more progressive um, in uh, attracting women and promoting mm. women, you know, and so on. It could be sort of a reverse causality where like successful companies you know, are able to pay attention to these kinds of things. Um, unsuccessful companies either can't or won't pay attention to them for some reason. Um, so it's really hard to disentangle. That's one possibility. Of course, it's also possible that having more women on the board results in better decisions. You know, it's sort of, uh, you know, um, it's, it's hard to disentangle those kinds of things with with correlational um, with correlational data. But but our I mean, our data does suggest that there could be benefit to that. I mean, we really need to do more research on that to sort of figure out what the cause and effect relationships are. I have more I'd love to talk with you about sometime. I'm just looking at the time, want to be respectful of yours. But I do want to touch on one thing. This is completely selfish on my part. But um, I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell on an NPR interview the other day. And he's talking about a field that I study, um, which is addiction. And Malcolm Gladwell was writing about something about drugs that I just, I noticed a number of these uh, cognitive errors in within the piece and then I read, you know, I have to be careful of my own bias because it probably just gave me some elation to read your own critique of his work. Maybe I can, well, actually, maybe I better let you, after I just said all of that without any context, maybe I better let you um, explain what I might be talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, well, so th this goes this goes back a few years, but I, I used to write um, I used to write book reviews. I, I mm. not as though I've sworn off writing book reviews, but I, I <laughs> it seems like I used to have more time to do them than than I have lately. And um, I was um, you know always been a follower of Malcolm Gladwell's work. Um, he's obviously very well known as a popularizer, especially of social science. Um, that was really sort of like an area that he pioneered. There was sort of like popular science and popular physics and so on going going way back, Isaac Asimov and so on. But popular social science was a bit of a new thing when when Malcolm Gladwell published um, The Tipping Point and some of his earlier New Yorker articles um, in the late 90s and early 2000s and then Blink um, and then his book Outliers. And so the Wall Street Journal asked me to review um, uh, one of his books, David and Goliath, um, which uh, was sort of about um, how, um, you know, how. Uh, uh, you know, giants can be overcome by, you know, smaller adversaries, as, as in the classic uh, David and Goliath um, story. And uh, I'm not going to go through all the details of it. I don't even remember all of them. But um, I, I was sort of, you know, I, I, I was a bit um, disappointed in the quality of, of evidence um, and logic in some of, um, you know, in some of his assertions. Um, as I had been in some of his previous books and as, as others had been. Um, so just, just to give one example, um, he talks quite a bit about these, the supposed advantages of being dyslexic. The idea that, you know, I believe actually says that dyslexia could be a gift because it sort of uh, accentuates your other cognitive abilities, you know, and he has, there's some famous people and, and very successful people who have um, been dyslexic, uh, and yet have achieved great success. And if you if, if you interview them, they'll they'll say, well, my dyslexia made it you know hard for me to read and so on. So I learned to, to have really good memory or I learned to pay more attention to something else and and so on. And it, it's all quite nice, except that there's there's other evidence that isn't mentioned at all. Like dyslexia is many times more common among prisoners than it is among the general population, hmm. which suggests that, you know, although there might be a few people who claim that dyslexia was some kind of cognitive gift. For most people, it's a cognitive burden, you know, and, and one that, you know, makes it uh, harder for them to, you know, to, to, to succeed in life. I mean, un, un, unfortunately, you know, and um, uh, that's just sort of one example. Uh, and, and generally sort of the, the, the tendency to sort of pick out, you know, flashy individual studies that, that, that make a nice point and so on without sort of paying too much attention to whether those studies actually replicate, whether independent researchers can get the same thing to happen and so on. It's sort of taking too much at, at face value, I think. And um, so I wrote, I wrote that review in another piece and uh, he didn't like it and, and wrote an article in, in Slate um, in response to my piece in Slate, which I believe was given the title, uh, Christopher Chabri should calm down. <laughs> um, so uh, that's really one of my career highlights is, is having an article titled Christopher Chabri should calm down. <laughs> um, published in a you know a mainstream uh, media outlet. Well, that's good. Uh, for, good for you then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, well, uh, many people who know me would say that you know there are probably quite a few times when I should calm down. So he was probably onto something there. Oh, too bad. I was going to say maybe you could make a rebuke that says uh, Christopher Chabrie should calm down. Another assertion without evidence. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's probably right. I mean, he might not have been right about the exact thing I was talking about, but yeah. in general, I probably should calm down. But I, I, I mean, one thing I have commented on, and I, I can't say I'm always perfect in this myself or that anyone is, but um, I, I think that there are a lot of science writers, sort of some of our, our most celebrated science writers, Malcolm Gladwell was one, Jonah Lehrer is another, um, uh, who have gotten too caught up in 
constructing really nice stories that are, you know, adorned with particular clever social science, psychology studies and so on without inquiring too deeply into whether the, res the scientific results are robust, um, meaning uh, basically simply, you know, is it one small study that says something that you want to believe or is it several independent studies with large samples and so on, all the you know qualities of, of good behavioral science and, and also um, cause and effect. I mean, cause and effect correlation and causation is a perennial problem in human thinking. It's not, you know, just science writers, but I really think that, you know, science writers ought to be, you know, using their opportunities to explain to people what the limitations are, yes. what you can conclude from evidence and what you shouldn't conclude. There's, there's so many opportunities to do that rather than just fall in with saying things like, well, because there's more ADHD among creative people, therefore ADHD must be a boon for creativity. Um, I mean, that just doesn't follow. You know, it's a classic correlation causation problem. I, I, it's a similar one to the dyslexia example that we were talking about before, and there are many others, you know, but it's just a classic problem where it sounds so good, it's so counterintuitive, it's interesting, it's uplifting and so on, but the evidence just isn't really there. That's such a good example because he had an opportunity there to say something like, um, we can, as a society, work with people who have let's say, dyslexia, uh, so that they can reach their full potential, rather than saying that if you have dyslexia, you have a gift. Because it seems seems to be true, actually, conversely, that people who have dyslexia and are successful are so, despite the dyslexia, not by virtue of it. So, I, think that's, I think that's fair to say, and one can only imagine like how much more successful some of these obviously highly intelligent, very focused, motivated people could have been if reading had been easier for them. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, like you say, there's something to be said for capturing something in a soundbite or a really good story, but perhaps it should always come with being above board with limitations. Yeah, and it, and, and it's hard because, um, you know, a, a good story is sort of a good story precisely because it kind of offers a, a compelling narrative that doesn't have a lot of exceptions and caveats and footnotes and, you know, and, and so on. Like, you know, foot, footnote one, incidentally, beanstalks can never grow this high, you know, as, as they do in this mm. fairy tale, you know, and, and so on, right? I mean... But, um, you know, we know when we're being told a fairy tale, we don't expect to be told a fairy tale when we're reading, you know, a science book or a social science book or something like that. Right. Well, maybe you've touched on these things, but if there's anything else, what advice, if any, do you have for lay readers to discern fact from fiction if they're being told a story, but it's not clear whether it should be taken as science or taken as a fiction? Well, it's it's always, I mean, there's this... Um, uh, in, in our book, in in, uh, in in one of the chapters of our book, we write about some research by um, uh, Leon Rosenblatt and Frank Kyle, who um, who are psychologists. And uh, in some of their studies, they would ask people if they think they understand how something works or if they think they understand a scientific phenomenon, like, do you understand why the sky looks blue? Mm. Or do you understand how a toilet works? And often people would sort of give themselves fairly high ratings on you know, how much they understood those phenomena or um, or objects. But then if you ask them to explain it, you know, or basically to say how they know it or explain actually how and you sort of keep on asking these why questions, these like irritating why questions. You don't need to ask too many of those questions before you completely exhaust people's store of knowledge. And often they can't even answer one you know, why question. And I'm not putting myself above anyone else here. Like, I, I don't think I can explain how a toilet works, even though I've looked inside them, you know, <laughs> yeah. well, inside the tank part, not inside the bowl, but inside the tank, you know, many, <laughs> many times. And I can explain to you why this guy is blue and, and so on. So um, often 
you know, you, you can sort of see by asking one question, um, you know, how much people really uh, understand. But beyond that, it's kind, to me, it's kind of like learning to be it's kind of like learning to be good at chess. You know, like a, the game of chess is a really complicated game. But one way one way that you learn how to be good at it is you just sort of like try to recognize you, you absorb more and more patterns from playing and studying and, and, and learning and so on. And so you start to recognize familiar configurations of things. And I think you can do that in, and in, you know, in chess, then, you know, you recognize a familiar pattern of where the pieces are on the board. And that says to you, well, the, the, a good move might be this or the right strategy might be that. And I think you can do that in the rest of life, too, especially if you sort of try to look for issues like, you know, correlation and causation or, you know, uh, putting too much weight on a tiny amount of evidence and so on. You try to look for those things in um, in everyday life, in books you read, articles you read and in, in what people tell you at work you know, corporate, uh, you know, corporate policies, um, you know, anything, you might start to notice those kinds of patterns more and, and read books about this stuff and like try to think about like other examples. If you read Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a great book um, about all the kinds of, um, you know, biases and, and cognitive illusions and, and you know, and, and so on that we have, then start thinking about examples of those in your own life. You could read our book if you feel like it. Um, another great book is um, uh, Everything is Obvious by Duncan Watts, who's a friend and, and collaborator of ours. And, um, you know, there's there's lots of good books like this that, that one could read and, and not just read the book, but then sort of like try to spend some time thinking about where it applies in your own life. Well, that sounds like a good place to end. We are running near time. Um, where can I direct my listeners who will want to learn more about you and your current projects? Uh, good places are my website, which is uh, shabri.com, C-H-A-B-R-I-S.com. Or uh, Twitter, of course, is always nice. I'm at C.F. Shabri. Um, those are probably the two uh, easiest places to go. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to have a conversation like this. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's uh, been a fun conversation, and good luck with the show. Again, we're talking to Dr. Christopher Shabri. We'll see you next time. Thank you.